Today is Wednesday. It's October 18th, 2023, and it's 2.40 in the afternoon. And hi, this is John Williams, and this is The Mincing Rascals. You can hear me weekdays on WGN from 10 to 2. And I'm Kate Flies. I'm a former reader, staff writer, former political op-ed columnist for the Sun-Times and Tribune, and now proprietor of a website on Substack that is kind of a hybrid of Chicago history and serialized novel called Roseland Chicago 1972. I'm Eric Zorn, the uh, publisher and proprietor of the Picky and Sentinel. Brandon, this is our very slick and choreographed start of the podcast, and you're just now clicking in. What the hell, man? Uh, Brandon, log in, please. Hey, it's Brandon Pope, host of On the Block on WCIU, hosted with Block Club Chicago, and the Making Podcast from WBEZ, new episode dropping Thursday. Kate, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. This is going to be fun. Considering the rocky start, you may just want to be clicking out now, right? You're actually like, what have I got myself into here? You want to have Amateur to do with this? Here. Holy cow. Uh, Brandon, we're glad you could join us. And Kate, thanks for being part of our podcast today. Here is my hot take today, though. If you're a talk show host, you have one. Members of the House of Representatives do not get paid until they elect a speaker retroactive to Kevin McCarthy's departure, they should forfeit their pay. And in fact, our John Hansen has calculated that so far, actually as of Tuesday night, they have been speakerless for 8.3% of this session. So let's start there. So far, they lose 8.3% of their pay. We could guess if we wanted to, if Ohio's Jim Jordan gets the gavel or not, time will tell. So maybe when you're listening to this podcast, that will already be decided. But for the record, I'm going to say yes. I think he still wins the speakership. He still gets it. But either way, this is a reminder of how dysfunctional the Republican Party has become. In fact, one Republican congressman from Colorado, Ken Buck, voted for Tom Emmer of Minnesota because he hates Emmer and wants him to have the worst job in the world. Now that is a hot take. Eric, do you agree with me? I know that, again, we'll we'll prove ourselves fools here in moments, perhaps, but Jim Jordan still retains the – Jim Jordan wins the speakership? I don't think so. I think that the Republicans realize – there are enough Republicans who realize that he is a toxic presence on our body politic and that he's going to hurt fundraising. He's going to hurt the chances for re-election for many Republicans who are in close districts. There are not that many of them, but there certainly are some. And that he will cost the Republicans control of the House, that they need somebody who is more moderate. Uh, and I know it, it in looking back, McCarthy doesn't look like that much of a moderate, but he but he comparatively was. He was willing to strike a couple of deals with the Democrats. Jordan is, as as uh, Speaker former Speaker Boehner described, he's a legislative terrorist. He doesn't want to get anything done. He just wants to blow things up. And I believe that this opposition to him, which grew by what two votes from Monday to Tuesday, or, or sorry, from Tuesday to Wednesday, mm-hmm. uh, that that he. Uh, I, I believe that opposition is going to grow. They're going to realize they need somebody who's a little bit less kooky than Jim Jordan being their speaker, and that they will settle on some compromised candidate who can lead them forward, maybe with some Democratic help. And in the, in the, I mean, there certainly are, are supposedly talks to that effect going on right now in Washington, where some of the Democrats are saying, look, we will, if you put somebody forward we can work with, we'll vote for them, sort of a coalition type. I don't know if this is that novel or not, but my understanding is as long as Jordan has been in the House, and it's been quite a while, he has never introduced a bill that became law. I don't know what that says about his legislative ability or his speakership potential. You know, given the fact that he's one of the founding members of the uh, Freedom Caucus, you know, thank God none of his um, things have gotten passed. That's great. I'm not as optimistic as Eric on him not getting elected speaker, and I have no secret Washington sources, but he's 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 up there. He's being voted on <clears throat> that only because they got tired of Steve Scalise. Apparently, it just doesn't look like it's going in the right direction, really. So I'm 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 worried. I don't see him becoming speaker of the House. Um, I really don't have a good bet on who would. Maybe Chip Roy. At this point, the best bet, and this probably not going to happen either, would be have the guy who's currently the speaker pro tempore, the the guy that has no power, who's in the seat right now, and give him power 
so they can pass some legislation. I just I don't see the Republicans at this point coming to any consensus because it looks like it with this this was this a third the second vote third well well they've done two uh, by the way NBC just as we sit here has said that Jim Jordan says that he is going to stay in the race but there will be no more votes today. So they're all going to go home yeah. and send nasty texts to each other's wives, and then come back and give it a, and give it another day. Wait to see he what Sean less- Hannity says, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. Ex- <laughs> really? That's he got less this time around than he did the first round. But so, that's I mean- what happened to Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy at first had nineteen against him, then he had twenty against him, but then slowly they they just wore them all down. And of course, they made that deal with. With uh, Matt Gates and company, so I, I don't know if a deal like that is in the offing. I'm curious if there could be a deal. I think that Kevin McCarthy's a different type of guy than that Jim Jordan is. I'm not sure Jim Jordan's going to be as amenable to bending over to the wills of whatever anybody else may want. Um, I don't think he wants to set up a deal or anything like that. So he's more likely to drop out, I think, set something up like that that Kevin McCarthy had, because then he's just uh, kind of a dead man walking. What a what a great reality show we're watching. Who's who's it going to be? Who's left on the island? I used to say that uh, the UK Parliament was the most entertaining and most dysfunctional thing we could see in politics, but um, U.S. House of Representatives is giving it a run for its money. Anybody who voted not to certify the results of the election, to me, it's easy. Well, then what what are you doing there? Then you, why would you vote? Yeah. I, I know that sounds partisan, but really, is that an extreme liberal view that if you voted to not accept the results of the election, that you should not be the Speaker of the House? That seems to me to be not a heavy lift. It seems a low bar. Yeah, thank you. I'm not asking for a lot here. I just don't see him being someone who the Republicans, when they think about it hard, would really want to be the speaker for the reasons that I outlined before. He is is too polarizing. He's too tight. He's leading this crazy impeachment effort against Biden. I mean, he is, I think, widely considered by mainstream and moderate voters as being a nut. And McCarthy... Although he was a pretty hard conservative, was not seen as being a nut. And I just think this is a really destructive effort by the part of the Republicans. And uh, I'm, I guess I'm sort of glad to see it in a way. But as I've said before, I was glad to see Trump nominated for president in 2016 because I thought he would lose all 50 states in the District of Columbia. So uh, I'm, a, I'm a little unsure of my my predictive powers. Yeah, this. well, 200 people have voted for Jordan. 200 in his caucus have voted for him for this seat, too. So I don't know if those people are just hoping that somebody bails them out. That is, there's always enough pushback that their four votes don't, their votes for him don't count, uh, don't cost them anything. Most, the vast majority of the House Republicans, Eric, have said, we want Jim Jordan to be the Speaker of the House. What you're looking for is a very small group of people to save you. Although I also wonder if the 22 who have, in the Republican caucus, not voted for Jim Jordan for Speaker, how many of them fully intend to vote for him? But they're just saving face with these votes. Well, I didn't vote for him the first few rounds. But then we had to get business done. There was a war in Israel. So I came around. So they can play that game. It's not like they've got their heels dug in on any other candidate. Scalise is getting seven. McCarthy is getting six or seven. But there are a dozen people in the House who are getting votes for this. So it's spread pretty thin. It's Jim Jordan. It's still, as we sit here today, Jim Jordan. Got some interesting reporting here from Melanie Zanona, a Chicagoan. Uh, for CNN. She says that some of Jim Jordan's opponents tell her they've been purposely staggering their no votes over multiple ballots, a strategy designed to show Jordan's speakership opposition is only growing. And that's why uh, they say Jordan's only going to bleed even more support on a third ballot. Yeah, this is this is a sinking ship for, for Jim Jordan. So yeah. you vote no this time, I'll vote no next time, that sort of thing. Yeah, wow. it's, a, it's, it's a round robin. Yeah. What that, that's that's insane. I mean, why don't they just all vote no? Give him like make make him realize he's in a forty vote hole or whatever it is, and have him step. I mean, Steve Scalise saw the writing on the wall, right? He lost that internal. Uh, well, he won. He won the in- internal battle, but then he realized he didn't have close to the votes to uh, 
to win. So he stepped back. And, and I, I, you know, if Jordan were smart, he would do that. But I, I have not heard anything that suggests that he's a smart man. So <laughs> wouldn't it be ironic if if they ended up putting McCarthy back in that position? And remember, when this process started, McCarthy led on that he would still be the speaker if they wanted him back. His big sin McCarthy's big sin was cooperating with the Democrats to keep the government open. Yeah. If you rem- and this is a, a measure of how crazy these people are, how crazy this this right-wing Republican faction is, that they would rather look like complete idiots, which they do right now on the national stage, uh, because they and, and they want to shut the government down. Uh, and they want to hold up aid to Ukraine. And, and I mean, that's that's one thing that's, that's really deadly serious about this, which is that if Jordan is elected speaker, there's no way that the House is going to pass any appropriation for Ukraine. And I think that's my, my feeling is that's terrible news. And I know that a lot of Republicans feel that that's terrible news. And we can't just uh, you know, go say, Vladimir, take what you want from Ukraine. It's it's fine. We don't really care about territorial integrity anyway. Uh, I, I think that's a, a, a really, really bad sign for the U.S. in the, in the, in the world stage. Uh, it's not just a, a matter of like taxes and spending. This is a really big deal. That's that's why it's so important. And I'm I'm really hoping that Jordan is not is not made speaker, even though I think it could redound to the benefit of the Democrats in the long run. Where has Donald Trump been the last 24, 48 hours, right? He endorsed Jim Jordan, but I don't know if there's a little egg on his face or if he's now cooling to his guy. He did a truth social post uh plumping for Jordan within the last 24 hours. But he's been busy with his matters in court, tweeting out <laughs> tweeting out links to the uh, New York Attorney General's uh, home address and things like that. So, Did he actually do that? Because I know they told him he could not post things or say things that would be injurious to any members of the court or the proceeding. I didn't know that he actually did that. He's such a sly dog. He, <laughs> he, uh, he posted a link to an article by Laura Loomer, who's one of the uh, white nationalists uh, in, in social media. That had the, the link that he posted to her Substack had information about the uh, attorney general's home address on it. So it was a, a bank shot. The intention is pretty clear. Keep in mind, anybody can be Speaker of the House. Doesn't have to be a member of the House. So maybe there's a universe where they try to put Donald Trump's name in. Kate's making a squishy face. Like, what are well, you guys that talking is about? Thinking out of the box. All right. But <laughs> Brenda's not the first one to <laughs> notice that. There's some other possibilities out there. Who else can we get? He was asked and said, "Well, if they need my help, I'd be happy to do it." And and and, and nobody has uh, actually specifically voted for him. But members of the Republican caucus have spoken favorably about that. It's not going there. He's kind of tied up these days. Not only is there now a war in Israel, specifically in in the Gaza Strip, though rockets are firing north into Israel as well, the worry is that the fighting might escalate and other players may come in. About the loss of life, last week, Eric, you said that atrocity is not an appropriate response to atrocity, or words to that effect. And at the time, I don't think I was with you. I felt that Israel was fighting back. And that the difference was deaths in Gaza were collateral to Israel's aims, whereas Hamas seemed singularly interested in killing civilians. Today, not so much. It seems that Israel is indifferent to the loss of Palestinian lives, or so without other options. They're a hammer, and everything in Gaza today is a nail. One last point about that. 30 minutes ago or so, as we were wrapping up my radio show, police at the Capitol were clearing the rotunda of folks who were identifying themselves as Jews. They wore T-shirts saying things like, not in my name, that there were Jewish Americans and Israelis who were protesting the way Israel is fighting this war. Ramana Hussein is a columnist and member of the Sun-Times editorial board, and she just zoomed in. Ramana, thanks for giving us your time. How are you? Good. How are you? Thank you for having me. Having just heard that introduction, uh, we'll we'll start with you. What was your reaction to that exchange? So I am a member of the Muslim community here in Chicago. I was born in Chicago, so um, I've been attending the Muslim Community Center of Chicago since I was 
a little girl. Um, so we have a sizable Palestinian um, American population that has attended our mosque. So I have friends who are Palestinian American. I grew up in Lincolnwood, um, Illinois, which is a north suburb with a large Jewish population. I went to high school in Skokie, which, as we know, um, at some point had the largest population um, of Holocaust survivors. So, um, you know, I, you know, my two neighbors growing up, um, there were elderly and elderly Jewish couples, they would tell us to call them grandma and grandpa. So, um, you know, I'm someone who understands um, a lot of the pain that some of the communities are feeling right now. And as a Muslim American, most I got to point out that a lot of times um, Muslims are conflated with Palestinians, although the Palestinian population also includes a sizable Christian population. I, that's one thing to prove, um, I should point out. But um as someone who's part of the Muslim American community, I feel like, um, you know, the response of our government has been, um, you know, particularly Joe Biden, has been as if there's no Palestinian Americans in this country. We live in a, uh, in Chicago, which has one of the largest, I believe, Palestinian American populations or Palestinian populations outside you know, um, Israel. So um, it's it's been interesting um, at the conversations. And I'm someone who uh, grew up, um, I was born in the 70s. And I grew up at a time where people didn't know who Indians were, let alone Muslims. And then 9-11 kind of changed that conversation. And um, a lot of us um, in my community were talking about how it felt eerily like 9-11, where Palestinian Americans and Muslims were asked to condemn Hamas. And it's like, we don't necessarily support Hamas. And it's just like a lot of people, you know, equating if you are, you know, are feeling or have some sort of sentiments uh, towards the Palestinians are automatically anti-Israel or, you you know, you can't th feel bad for the civilians on both sides. So I just felt like it was important to get um, that voice out there in the column that I wrote last weekend and just about how I was feeling and the emotions I was feeling in response to the latest violence that has broken out, um, sadly, in the Middle East. Among other things, you said in your column, Palestinian lives seem to be worth a lot less. I think the However brief evolution of this war is helpful, at the very first, of course, our sympathies were with Israel. The very first statements, the atrocity, the trigger on this thing was what Hamas did. And when we heard about and saw the devastation, of, of course, our sympathies were with Israel. And I don't know that we thought so much about the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip at first, but I think the sentiment, I think the pendulum has swung the other way in a very short space of time. What we're seeing in, in Gaza now is, what's, what's the end of this sentence? It's horrific. And the, the bombing of the hospital, which I know is, is a matter of great dispute online, uh, the idea being that uh, Israel saying that, uh, I guess, a, a misfired rocket from some other uh, pro-Palestinian group was what actually destroyed the hospital. Um, and I certainly can't referee that claim. I do know that that uh, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the fog of war, but that the loss of life and the things that, that are going through with, with people who are uh, – you got to remember that the Palestinian – I mean, the residents of Gaza have not been able to vote. I and mean, people say, oh, they, they elected Hamas. They haven't been able to vote for, what, 22 years or something like that? I mean, it's, it's, it's 2006, 2007. 17 years, yeah. Yeah, they haven't been able to vote. Uh, so who knows how many of them actually? And 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 I don't I don't imagine I don't know exactly, but I don't imagine that that political dissent is is common in in Gaza. So I, I'm guessing we have no idea how the actual the run of the mill citizen in in Gaza feels about about Hamas. So the idea that that these I mean to, to my mind these people are are largely innocent. And our cannon fodder, and I know that Hamas is using some of them as human shields, but, you know, giving them, what was it, 24 hours to get out of, of, of northern uh, Gaza, which uh, that seemed that seemed really intemperate. And and some of this uh, bombing and shelling that we're hearing about and the loss of life. And it gets back to what we were talking about, what, what I said, what I wrote a week ago, which is that if Israel responds in a way that changes this dynamic, this, this sympathy that we're feeling and makes us feel like, hey, you know, they, yeah, they, what happened with them was, was, was 
horrific and contemptible, condemnable, totally. But if if they meet that with killing more children, more you know elderly people, more sick people, bombing hospitals, and so on, um, then the, the sympathies are going to change, and it's not going to lead anywhere if we're looking for some sort of long-term solution and that was what uh what i was referring to the reporting seems pretty solid that israel did not it was not responsible for the bombing of the hospital but the thing is we don't know yet right it's very early the u.s is saying you know i I think we heard joe biden earlier to say today saying that it looks like it was from quote the other team but the thing is the u.s is still investigating what exactly caused the bombing. And one of the things that a lot of war reporters or a lot of people who are reporting in the Middle East have said that that is a tendency for Israel to deny that, you know, certain, you know, allegations that are like placed against them. There was a murder of a reporter uh, over a year ago named Shirin Abu Akhle, who um, was killed by Israeli forces. But initially Israel denied and they said that it was from gunfire from militants that she was killed in and she was caught in. So, you know, as Eric pointed out, this is war. So we don't know the truth yet. I I, I think it's too soon to make that determination. I wasn't there, so I don't know. But just because Israel says, and our government says, I mean, we talked about um, weapons of mass destruction with Iraq. There can always be misinformation that's sent out. So I think it. I think. I think we still have to kind of hold back before there's actual confirmation, even though our government says it, because that could change. Because with this murder of this journalist that I talked about, um, Israel recently had um, finally said that it was yes, it was probably gunfire from one of their soldiers. So just saying that we have to keep that in mind. I see kind of a a parallel in the whole hospital issue with the issue uh, closer to October 7th, where people were debating how many babies did Hamas behead as if that mattered. It should have been easy for everyone who needed to verbally condemn Hamas for obvious terrorist actions, killing civilians and children, regardless of how many babies actually were beheaded. Civilians killed on purpose with no military objective. I think that's all you need on that. The hospital, whether or not Israel directly targeted that hospital, the entire Gaza bombing campaign is going to have a lot of collateral damage, and they know it. Um, So you can be absolutely clear that Hamas is a theocratic, dictatorial terrorist group without thinking that the best thing for Israel to do is to be bombing Gaza, Um, especially, of course, with Hamas purposely using civilians to shield themselves in so many places. Um, On the one hand, with the fog of war and everything else, how do we really know what their ultimate strategic objectives might be, Israel? But Overall, I think many people like me are thinking, aren't they just walking into Hamas's trap besides starting to commit the same, not the exact same atrocities, because I do think there is a difference between out-and-out terrorism and collateral damage. But at some point, you do start to cross the line, if not in reality, certainly in the court of world opinion. There was a really good piece by Thomas Friedman in the New York Times where he, he talks about if Israel did not do a full-blown invasion of Gaza. He says Iran would be totally frustrated. Hezbollah would be disappointed. Hamas would feel devastated because its whole plan comes to naught. Vladimir Putin would be crushed because Israel would not be burning up ammunition and weapons. The U.S. needs to be sending to Ukraine. The settlers in the West Bank would be enraged. Meanwhile, the parents of every Israeli soldier and every Israeli held hostage would be relieved. Every Palestinian in Gaza caught in the crossfire would be relieved. And every friend and ally Israel has in the world, starting with Joe Biden, would be relieved. Uh, I think he makes a good case that that this you ask yourself, why did Hamas do this? Um, and it wasn't because they thought it was going to topple Israel, clearly, but it does change. I mean, Israel was on the verge of, of a uh, making a, a treaty with Saudi Arabia. They were becoming more normalized. This is going to, I think, further isolate or re- renew isolation of Israel in the Middle East uh, because of the, how the, the, the Middle East, the, the street 
the world is going to react to their response to this, uh, whether it's seen as, as proportionate and unjust. But if this is the equivalent of their 9-11, I wonder if we can relate to it that way. How would we have felt if the rest of the world told us to moderate our response? If we had started bombing within a day or two, it would not be surprising because I just don't see how that can be really strategic. It, it, it just seems like going off half-cocked. Half I, I think they absolutely have a right to defend themselves, and, and, and I really feel like that should go without saying. But at the same time, why was it necessary to start bombing so quickly without being more careful. And there's this, uh, and there's this, like, you know, people are talking about how Israel is very precise in, uh, you know, targeting um, Hamas. But out of the over 3000 civilians that have been killed, mostly civilians, I should say, a, ma- a large majority or a large part, I think over a 1000 are, are children. So you can't say this is precise. And people and a lot of people are also mentioning how Israel um, is unique in that they warn you know, people in Gaza before they're going to be doing the bombing. But where are they going to go? You know, this is 2 million people that are cramped in a really small space. They're not living in the best conditions and haven't been for a long time. So for people to act like Israel is really, you know, they're restraining themselves, they aren't. I mean, I think I think I read somewhere that the U.S. isn't even asking for a restraint. I wish they had. I wish that Joe Biden, when he was, and and I don't know if maybe it wasn't that first speech where he just spoke emotionally about how horrible this was, and we even got some of the facts wrong. He was describing things that he hadn't witnessed and probably did not happen. But maybe the speech the next day, or Blinken, or somebody needs to say, we encourage Israel to respond appropriately, but do everything they can to limit the loss of innocent lives. I don't know what the language is, but... I'm with you, Ramana. I have not heard the United States actually counsel publicly Israel to show some restraint. I think we'd be very receptive, especially right now here in this country. Jews in this country and the capital are asking for some restraint. I guess that isn't with one voice, but there's there's certainly an appetite for a message like that. I would say that for people who kind of automatically – um, assume that all Jews are 100% behind everything the Israeli government does. I don't think any of us should be surprised by that because they're always extremely divided about, and, and, and that just gets escalated the more controversial the policy is. But I mean, that's probably, we're reading why Hamas chose now because the Israeli public was so so divided over what Netanyahu has been doing just with the judicial system lately. So the the Jewish community at large and the Israeli community is is always very critical of the Israeli government and, you know, not in lockstep with everything they do. I'm going to be very careful on what I say here. But this 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 situation is frustrating and saddening and maddening, especially the U.S.'s involvement. You have a whole generation of young Americans now who see that they're seeing up close what America values most. America values war. America values violence. They, they value the oppression of black and brown bodies above all. And I think that we're seeing that exemplified in the American leaderships turning a blind eye to what Israel's done. Ramona, I thank you for what you wrote here um, about one-sided statements um, and the lopsided atmosphere going on, because that's exactly what's been happening. Amidst all the misinformation, there has been a failure by mainstream media to be critical of the sourcing they're using, like taking everything the Israeli government says verbatim. We seem to recognize that Russia has a state media that lies, but we can't do the same thing for Israel. And it's just very, it's very troubling. Meanwhile, this is not new. Palestinians have been getting killed for decades, decades. Civilians have been getting killed for decades. And the U.S. has sanctioned it, has funded it, you could even argue. We're seeing that America values paying for war above paying for health care, paying for war and killing others above paying for college, above paying for basic human needs. While you have people in poverty here in this country that I think 
every being of conscience should be outraged and saddened to see what Hamas did. And I think every human of conscience should be also equally as outraged at the atrocities committed by the Israeli government to the Palestinian people for decades now. And I just wish that we had better media literacy, uh, a better social media ecosystem as well, where this misinformation and, you know, just taking one side of things just wasn't the case. Uh, Ramana, I want to ask you, could you, you you did a good job in the piece kind of breaking down the thorough lines of how the statements we're hearing from the top can translate um, into real world consequences here at home and and, and violence. Uh, We just had a new FBI report come out this week showing hate crimes uh, went up in 2022 uh, across the the country. And in Chicago, you zoom in, hate crimes went up 84% across the board. The largest group being, you know, against against Jewish people, uh, anti-Semitic crimes, but also black and brown crimes as well. Crimes against Muslim people gone up as well. So can you kind of break down for me how one-sided statements from elected leaders, whether it's Democrats, Republicans, whoever, how they can translate into what we're seeing happening, especially the six-year-old in uh, Plainfield Township uh, who was uh, mercilessly killed. Oh, definitely. I mean, um, I was, I mentioned CARE Chicago in my, uh, the Council of American Islamic Relations. The Chicago chapter, um, had, uh, pr- issued a press release last week saying within that five short day period, within, within a week since, um, Israel was attacked, uh, that the number of call, uh, reports are getting for, um, you know, hate, you know, hate messages and emails that people are sending to people and reports are getting rivaled um, the numbers they were getting during 9-11 and after uh, Donald Trump announced the Muslim ban. And um, I think anybody who was Muslim and or Arab was feeling this last week. And I discussed it with a couple of friends about how we just, like I mentioned, we were just feeling like the, it feels like 9-11 again, where people are just allowed to say certain things. And we knew this was going to escalate into something. Um, against the Muslim community. I'm sure, you know, the Jewish community is on alert as well. And, you know, we have to be yeah. vigilant about um, any sort of attacks against any communities. But, you know, the six-year-old child um, on, uh, you know, being killed, that's an example. This, this, uh, the, the man who allegedly stabbed this boy had been living with the, you know, had rented uh, a room out to this mother and son. I think it was a family and he was fine with them for two years. He even built a tree house for the boy, apparently. And then he started listening to conservative, uh, talk radio. And within, uh, just a few days, it seems like it changed his mind, according to you know, prosecutors. And he allegedly stabbed this boy 26 times because he looked at this boy who was Palestinian and Muslim as a threat. And this just shows how um, rhetoric and how when our government officials don't point out that it's wrong to assign collective blame on a group of people when they don't point out you know, how this is wrong. And I don't think Joe Biden did a good job in this, you know, right after um, Hamas had attacked Israel. He did. It was, yeah, it's right for him to talk about how, um, you know, the Israeli community and the Jewish community is hurting. But I think the first 11 minute speech I heard him after Gaza started getting bombed, he did not say, barely said anything about the Palestinians or, you know, stressing that Palestinians don't equal Hamas. And I think that was very important for him to say at the beginning. He tweeted something on Sunday. By that point, the six-year-old boy had been dead. One of the really heartbreaking elements of that story of the six-year-old boy was that he had such a good relationship with this landlord that when the landlord came into the house, he ran toward him thinking he was going to get a hug. I was just, I mean, the whole story is just devastating, heartbreaking, but that particular detail really jumped out at me like i wanted to ask uh, brandon let's circle back to what you said about what the u.s values um mm-hmm. and i'm wondering uh, you know I, I i sense that you know the sense that the u.s uh is maybe i i was i was a little bit wanted you to elaborate on that word in terms of, of what you said about how it feels about like black and brown lives uh whether you think it's just more like an indifference especially to foreign black and brown lives um, rather than valuing their death. I I just wanted you to clarify what you'd said there. I know you were choosing your words carefully, but I was just curious about that. I think over we've seen over history, 
decades and decades of American policy, both domestic and foreign, and also today, that the American government, the powers respond more to the consciousness of the majority instead of what should be overall American consciousness, right? That any people suffering, any people dealing with oppression, any people dealing with with hunger or starvation or anything like that should have equal protection there. I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. But weren't you saying, I, I heard you, to, here's the image that came to my mind. If the images we yeah. are seeing on our screens were of people whose skin color was lighter, our reaction would have been quicker and more visceral. That, that's well, that's I, what I was pulling from that. Basically, that's that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that, you know, the people, when we saw the attacks that happened by Hamas on Israel, disgusting attacks that should be condemned by all, um, you know, the sympathy train was rightfully there. However, it just was in juxtaposition and complete just like imbalance to everything that's happened with in, in the past. Like none of this happens in a vacuum. And I think right away our American media failed to even contextualize What's been going on in that region? What's been going on well, in Gaza? Do you think it's changed in the last week or so? I mean, really, things are happening really. so quickly no, here. No, not at I all. Don't. You don't think that the zeitgeist, that the attitude in America right now is, holy crap, they're they're pounding the hell out of the Palestinians, and those people are no, as much not, a victim? Not. I don't think so, because Arabs and Muslims have been dehumanized for a long time by our politicians, both by the left and right, because... Um, anybody who is Arab and Muslim will tell you that whenever we speak out about Islamophobia, it is not taken that seriously. Casual Islamophobia is pretty much accepted in the United States. And so, um, you know, when you dehumanize a group of people, you know, whether they're black or brown, just the care or concern for them is not going to be there. And I, there, I'm not going to say that every single American does not care about what's happening. There is a care and concern. But what I'm finding is there's a, just a lot of ignorance out there, too. I mean, after I did my column, um, I, I never purport to be a Mideast expert, but people are trying to explain to me, like, you know, why civilians need to die and, like, why um, there's a lot more sanity um, amongst the Israelis than there is amongst, like, you know, the crazy Arabs. And so it's it's just this stereotype. Um, the stereotypes, as long as they're allowed to be out there, I just think the Palestinians have been dehumanized for a long time. I think there's a lot more people speaking out than before. Yeah. But I still think the majority of the public does not look at Palestinians, Arabs, and or Muslims as um, fully realized human beings. I'm trying, to, and I'm not arguing that point. And I and I value the what what you said too, Brandon. Maybe I'm just reacting personally. Maybe it's my hope. I, I think it's been my observation on the radio too that while what the two of you has said is true that the sentiment is, for once at least, beginning to regard these lives more on an equal plane. I'm sorry. I think that there's a hell of a lot of sympathy out there for the people in Gaza right now. I'd be very interested to see some some national polling on that question. Yeah. Probably almost all of the people here today tend to be in conversation mostly with other relatively – liberal and progressive people. So practically everybody I know, and even who I just talked to on a morning dog walk, are very concerned. And and we're worried about what was going to happen to Gaza from the very start, since everyone knew what was going to happen from the very start. But I have no idea how that plays out on a national level. I don't, really. Right, really, I just have an anecdotal feeling for it. But my anecdotal feeling just among people that I speak with is is that there has been huge concern for 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 the people in Gaza. I just don't know how that how representative that is. I think that there is sentiment out there for sure. Now, I hate to sound like this person, but now that the mainstream media has been forced to like actually show what's happening in Gaza and show the other side because of all the calls from activists and and palestinians to do so and then the muslim community and the arab community there probably is more sympathy now but uh, there was a cnn poll that came out uh just a few days ago uh it showed that most respondents said that 
the Israeli government's military response to the Hamas attacks is fully justified. I see something like that. That means you're telling me that you think that if that poll was six three days, bombs in six days, but that was three days ago. If that, that was, was three days ago. Uh, I know this has this war has been going on for not two weeks. I mean, I, I really think that the Israeli the response has changed. I don't think three days is. I don't think three days really changes how people feel. I don't think everybody. The pendulum swung has swung the other way. Everybody's pro Palestinian. I mean, just for example, with where I how I ended my column, where Jamie Lee Curtis had posted <laughs> a picture yeah. by a freelance photographer that showed um children trying to escape bombs and she thought that there were israeli children as soon as it was pointed out that there are actually palestinian children trying to find shelter from the israeli airstrikes she took the picture down and um that just shows you like it's like people don't want to say that they have sympathy for palestinians and you know hollywood likes to present itself as a liberal entity and i've seen some um language and rhetoric from like so-called liberals um about palestinians so mm-hmm. you know this is someone that's supposed to be supposedly liberal it's like it's like people are so they're, they they don't want to be seen as like showing sympathy for brown kids. And it's really sad. You know, she took the picture down and said something like, well, all kids are suffering on both sides. But like as if like having a picture of Palestinian kids or showing them sympathy is something that she needs to like, oh, I'm distancing myself from that. So I just think that's just exemplary about about how a lot of people feel in this country. I'm not saying everybody. I do think there's a lot more people paying attention. But um, I do think that attitude is still there, like where people cannot see both groups is equal or both groups is human. It's like you, it's like, oh, okay, if you're sympathetic towards the Israelis, you cannot have any sort of sympathy towards the Palestinians. And not everybody's like that, but there's a lot of people like that. The context that's really missing here is what was it like in Gaza beforehand. We didn't talk about that. We, we, we knew the geography of it, maybe where it was, but I don't think Americans were very well dialed in on the conditions in which those people were living or what the, the recent or past history was between Israel and Gaza. I didn't know that the population was so young, that 50% of the people that live there are 19 or younger, that the unemployment rate was 40 or, or percent higher. It, it's ironic almost, isn't it, that Benjamin Netanyahu is giving us a real lesson in the horrible <laughs> conditions that those people have been living in. As much as you need to contextualize this 75-year-old issue where you've got legitimate grievances on both sides, you've got acts of, of uh terror, horror, whatever on both sides. Uh, it, it is it is important, I think, to to not try to act like I mean, the, the people like me who have not been dialed into this conflict in the Middle East for a long time, uh, I find it very hard to referee this, except that it's fairly clear to me that when you m- meet an atrocity with an atrocity, you're just going to make things worse. And and that's sort of a, a human observation. Now, now I, I know it's, I mean, and I certainly heard from a lot of people, as, as Romana did too, uh, after what I wrote, I heard from people saying, you know, you're, you're, don't you know about this? Don't you know about this? And the truth is that in a lot of cases, I didn't know about a lot of the things that both sides are claiming. I heard from people who are, who are very pro-Palestinian, who, who are ticking off you know, grievance after grievance, and I'm like, okay. I mean, I didn't, I did not, I have not followed all those things. But, but I think that that we're at a point now where you need to, we need cooler heads to prevail. We need to figure out some sort of a solution. And I don't think that th- killing a lot more people is going to make everybody ready ready for peace. I think that that is uh, is a really poor strategy. Agreed. I, I do think um, what Kate said was important. You know, even people in Israel don't necessarily agree with Benjamin Netanyahu, who has gotten more right and right um, through the years. Um, one of the things he um, had tweeted yesterday that he took down, he said, this is a struggle between the children of light and the children of darkness, between humanity and the law of the jungle. So that just shows you, um, you know, where his mind's at. So, you know, he knows that he is... Uh, you know, getting, you know, targeting children, even though he says he isn't. So I just think that the fact that he put that out there, you know, where his mind's at and, you know, whether or not Hamas uses children as as shield, they are being killed and they are being killed by Israeli airstrikes. And I just hope that, you know, the violence stops because I do agree as, um, 
Eric said, um, you know, an atrocity should not be met with another atrocity. I don't know how killing more Palestinians is going to endear Palestinians to the Israelis. It's just going to make um, a group that already has grievances more, you know, more sad and more angry against the people, um, you know, that they've been fighting for years. So I yeah. do hope that, um, you know, as Eric said, cooler hairs, uh, cooler heads prevail and that this conflict is over sooner than later. Yeah, I wonder how far they've set back the idea that there will be peace or that these people will find a way to coexist. This sure seems to be short-sighted. Ramana Hussein is a columnist and member of the Sun-Times editorial board. Ramana, thanks for visiting with us. We sure appreciate your peace in the Times, and we hope you can join us again another day. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. See you, Ramana. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye. Um, two other quick points we want to touch on. Mayor Brandon Johnson has elected to not join the delegation heading to the Mexico border. He schemed up a fact-finding trip, but now says issues here in Chicago are sufficiently pressing that he should stay back. His deputy mayor of immigrant, migrant, and refugee rights is going. Three aldermen are heading down as well. I thought it was a bad idea when he first announced it. It sounded like a stunt to me. And then I thought it was a bad idea that he said he's not going to go because now it seems like they don't know what the hell they're doing over there. Dude, did you did you just now realize we have an immigrant crisis in Chicago and we still don't have a place for tents? But now he's not going there. So I think he's 0 for 2 on this one. I, I think you, you have it quite right there. I was kind of surprised to hear him say that he was going to begin with. I agree. I don't see any reason for that other than scoring potential publicity points. As I recall, you played that press conference response of his last week when people, somebody was questioning exactly when he was going. And he was a little, to me, unhinged in that response where he went off on, you know, he's got soccer games to go to and such. A wife and kids, yeah. When to go to the border. It sounded like things are a bit much for him right now, which I don't blame him. It's not a job I would want. But I don't think he should have been thinking about publicity points to go to the border to begin with, because it is such a true crisis that I would think every minute counts for him. And he shouldn't be wasting it going to the border to do what he should be delegating people to do for him. I thought the peripheral points he'd score would be at least maybe a Democrat mayor going, like the mayor of New York going down there, would at least demonstrate that might push the president or the Congress to do something about this because this deserves federal attention. But that was the only hope I could get for any sense in it. Eric didn't even see the sense in that. I'd like to see him go to Washington. If he's going to take a trip on this issue, he should be going straight to Washington. It's a federal issue. Uh, no matter point. how you cut it, it's a federal issue. And if I don't blame the people in Texas for not thinking that it should be all on them, the way they're doing it is problematic. But I don't blame them for thinking that it should be spread across everybody. I think that's true. We all need to participate in that. But I, since it's yeah. a federal problem, let them deal with it. They should be taking these busloads of people and spreading them out equally across the country, not just places that have called themselves a sanctuary city. Totally agree. I totally agree that Washington would be a very smart trip for Mayor Johnson to take, uh, to go down there and... Uh, he needs to hire me, it, right? Yeah. <laughs> bang, bang his shoe on the table and demand money because, yeah, the, the uh, yeah. there was some, there's some controversy at the city hall this week because the mayor's budget has what a hundred and fifty million dollars to deal with the migrant crisis next year and they've already spent more than that this year and migrants are coming in every day by the bus load and the the yeah. people on city council some of the aldermen were saying like well what are you talking about there's not nearly enough money here to deal with this crisis and and the answer was well we expect the federal government to come in and i mean it's sort of figured into our calculations <laughs> and there's they, they, like they don't have enough money to deal with this problem now and they they need that money and if mayor johnson can go down to washington and make a scene and demand this money maybe he can go with eric adams from new york and some other right. other big city mayors and 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 really say hey look this is not should not be our problem this is the the problem of the united states of america and we need to all pitch in and deal with it and not 
put the burden on the, on the citizens of Chicago because we, you know, the people who live in Chicago and, and I think we all do, right? Uh, we're all going to be paying for it. Uh, mm-hmm. And we're all or or we're all going to be denied services that we would otherwise have, or we're going to have a budget yeah, hole that. that we don't don't have. And and you know I, I don't have a a problem with paying my fair share for this certainly, but I don't think that it should be up to the taxpayers of Chicago to shoulder that burden. Unfortunately, I think it's all politics. Why they're not? You know, they don't want to gang up on on a Democratic president. I'm afraid, um, but otherwise, the the smart thing to do would have been to team up with. Texas and Florida at the same time. Yeah, all of them go. Oh, no, that would have been, wow. Let's Imagine that. Ron DeSantis and Brandon Johnson holding hands, walking up the National Mall with a thousand migrants behind them, pitching tents as they go. <laughs> that would do it. You know what surprises me, though? I don't know what $300 million is. That's what we have spent or have allocated so far. Doesn't that seem like a lot of money? Doesn't 150 or 300 million dollars sound like a lot of money um, solve a lot of problems with that money uh, yeah like homelessness or it ought to be enough to care for fifteen thousand people for i don't know a couple years uh, we just yeah. I, I don't know where that money goes it's it's amazing to me this border issue is a losing issue for democrats and so the only justification i would have saw for that trip was what you had just said john trying to show a democratic representative at the border caring about this issue and trying to win some political points. That literally would have been the only point of this. Otherwise, it just looks like you're running away from the problem while people are flooding these town halls and these public meetings, angry, upset, enraged Yeah, uh, from all sides, black communities, Latino communities, white communities, all upset about this right now. And then Instead of you standing in front of them and taking the questions, you're going to go to the border to take a few photos and show that you care. Like, I don't think it was well thought out. And as you said, reversing it, too, kind of gives off that as well. Like, it's almost them saying, yeah, we we kind of made a mistake there. Well, he wasn't at that uh, community meeting at the Amundsen Center, was he? The the armory or the... The gym, where was it at Amundsen, where they were proposing to house some of these migrants? I don't think, yeah, yeah, I I don't think he was there for that meeting. Like, here's what I want to do. I want to read the report that comes back from these aldermen. They're going to say, well, you're never going to believe this. There's a whole bunch of people from Venezuela, and they're right there crossing from Mexico into Texas. And then they put them on bus. I'm like, dude, what do I not know in this report, (laughs) right? I mean, you know, maybe. I know, like. If, if they say, but we've got photographs of spaceships, I go, good idea. I'm glad you went down there. I didn't know about the spaceships. <laughs> but otherwise, I think I know everything they're going to say. Here's what may be worth a trip, though. I, I could see the argument for a trip to Venezuela or one of these places that people are coming from um, to try to get a better sense of the conditions they're leaving. But just going to the border, talking to the DHS and the different agents and doing a tour of the area and getting your photos, I, I, that doesn't do anything to advance the cause. It's just a waste of time. Speaking of waste of time, here's our last quick topic. Kate, your thoughts on the <laughs> Chicago Bears. Oh, boy. Oh, well, now, I did talk to my husband, who is my informal Bears expert on this, and he's pretty optimistic about Bajent. Is that how you say his name, Bajent? Tyson Bajent, yeah, B-A-G, it looks like yeah, it's yeah. B-A-G-E-N-T. He's, he's Bajent. pretty optimistic. He was pointing out to me that um, Bajent really, uh, uh, you know, he throws the ball quickly, whereas Justin Fields <laughs> tends to keep it. And apparently Tom Brady feels that you've got to throw that ball in 2.5 seconds. Yeah. And Bajent does that. But Fields holds on to it for like three, four seconds. And in fact, that's how he got injured, was holding on to it for like six seconds. Now, my understanding is that Tom Brady, being like Tom Brady, is generally considered good in football. So I know the guy is from the tier two college, but that's very promising. I thought this part up myself. Okay. I know he didn't get drafted. But neither did Brian Piccolo. He didn't get drafted by the NFL <laughs> or by the AFL. And this is a guy who managed to step in for Gail Sayers. I'm not saying he was Gail Sayers, but he, was, he managed to step in for him quite a bit. So, you know, I, I think we do have reason to be optimistic. 
He's not only from a Division II college, he's from a D2 school I didn't even know existed. Uh, <laughs> but but he's got passing records. He's got NCAA passing records. Like, the, the guy does have some credentials. Yeah, and his dad is like the world's arm wrestling champ, which is sort of a strange, <laughs> a strange little fact. But it's wow. a great story. It's a, it's a ter- I mean, this this guy, undrafted, sets all these records at this at this low level, but he's clearly had skills as a being able to throw the ball. He get, he's playing in front of like 2,000 people a year ago, and he comes to Chicago, and suddenly Justin Fields gets hurt, and he's going to start against the Oakland Raiders. Mm-hmm. And it's just like it is st- so teed up for a storybook ending where he becomes like a superstar. Um, you know, Tom Brady, speaking of him, he was drafted in the fifth round. He wasn't undrafted, and he played for a great college, I, Michigan, I think it was. Um, and, um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, he, you know, I mean, these the stories of, of, of quarterbacks who thrive when they weren't all that a big deal when they were in college. Now, now Bajan was a, a, was a big star in, in Division Two, but but uh, I'm going to yield to Brandon, who is our uh, Justin Fields champion and, uh, <laughs> and an Ohio State fan who could probably really speak to why this Tyson Bajan oh. story is. And by the um, way, if Bajan's last pass had not gotten intercepted, if he hadn't just put up that dead duck, who knows? Maybe we would already be seeing the Disneyfication of him because. He comes in for the injured fields, and he leads the team down. Granted, it's the Bears, not against a great team. But, I mean, I was so hoping that they would win that game for his family, for him. I just love the optimism here from all these Bears fans. It's so so easy to get everyone so excited off of what's (laughs) going to be a a nothing burger. (laughs) I'll tell you what. I think the kid is going to do decently in um, Luke Getze's system because he fits Luke Getze's system better. Luke Getze is a terrible offensive coordinator when it comes to adjusting for the talent he has. Um, he hasn't adjusted for Justin Fields at all. Um, and so for that reason, I think Bajan's going to do okay, as okay as a Division two guy in the NFL making his first start is going to do. Um, the Raiders are a beatable team, so maybe they win the game, but I'm fairly certain the Bears are going to be drafting a quarterback um, next season. Starting fresh, new coaching, new coaching staff, and they're going to need to trade Justin Fields. And I think that's the best thing for Justin Fields, and perhaps the best thing for the Bears overall as well. Give him a fresh start with a coaching staff that actually understands him, understands his skill set, and will actually coach toward his skill set, um, and not try to fit him like a square a piece in a, into a round uh, hole or something. You got to you yeah. got to build around a quarterback and they haven't done that. It would be very Chicago though if he, Justin Fields goes somewhere else and has just like an incredible Hall of Fame career like three or four Super Bowl rings. I think he's going to be good we, elsewhere. And then yeah. we and Falcons. then the Bears Bears draft that uh, quarterback from USC who uh, what he threw three picks on Saturday night against Notre Dame and everyone thinks he's <laughs> the the savior of the team so so well, I mean th- it's the Bears it's got it's going to turn out bad. Kate ask Ron, your husband, uh, he'll tell you it's, 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 it's going to go bad. It's going to go bad because it's the Bears. From today's press availability, producer Pete just handed me this. What was Tyson Bajan's backup plan if he didn't make the NFL? They asked him that question. He said, CrossFit, CrossFit my life away and get ripped and jacked as I could and then be a teacher at my alma mater, Martinsburg High School. With the loss to the Vikings on Sunday, here's just a sidebar note. Justin Fields' winning percentage at 6-25 is now 19.4%. That drops him below Cade McNown, who at 3-12 was 20% as the losingest starting quarterback in Chicago Bears history with a minimum of 10 starts, which is the way they Mm -hmm. benchmark those things. That concludes today's fascinating Mincing Rascals podcast. A lot of ground covered, actually. I kind of mean that. (laughs) Kate, I'm so glad you were able to join us today. It's been delightful and insightful. We really appreciate a lot of your time, even as I think we captured you on vacation. Is that right? Very much. You you caught me as I was starting off down a trail in Ludington State Park. So I literally had about 10 minutes after I got home to look at our topic. So uh, hopefully I didn't say anything too stupid. No, that's my job. You were terrific. <laughs> thank you for uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, we hope you can join us again, yeah. Kate. Thanks. We yeah. love to. 
Absolutely. Great to have you. Along with Brandon and Eric, I'm John Williams. We're produced by Pete Zimmerman. And we'll drop another pod on you next week. Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com. 